With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs>
that are punitive uh, and that are doing damage to the nation. That's right. They're doing damage to this nation. And I think that a lot of the enforcement of the laws has really gotten out of control, too. When you see the... Just about every government agency now. When you see the... uh, the the federal libraries with their own SWAT teams. Uh, when you see the Department of Agriculture with the SWAT teams and buying body armor and and taking bids for submachine guns, specialized, specially made forty caliber submachine guns. It's it's getting out of control and. The time to do something about it is right now. The longer you wait, the longer and further that you allow it to get out of control, the harder it's going to be to fix. And I don't want to sound like an alarmist, and I don't think that I am. I don't. I, I think that I'm. Uh, I think I'm pretty level-headed in this, but. I'll tell you, it's going in a terrible direction for our country. Uh, you see, uh, you see reports daily of abuse of powers of the government by uh, uh, federal and even uh, even local law enforcement. The gap between the citizens law enforcement is has become huge and that's not the way it was meant to be uh, and if we don't stop that if we don't find some way to bridge this if we, just, if we don't find some way to slow this down then it's gonna it's gonna be ugly that's all there is to it and you've seen the cases just recently with the uh, Bundy affair out in Nevada now whether or not you uh, whatever side you come down on for uh, Bundy, it doesn't matter because sending uh, sending several dozen guys with machine guns and uh, and snipers and helicopters uh, and attack dogs to get a guy's cows off what is supposed to be public land. We don't even debate debate that right now. Uh, And then setting up uh, little fenced-in First Amendment areas, which is exactly what they were calling them. They were uh, arresting people because they were not in within the First Amendment areas. This came to... uh, this developed into a situation that was almost a shooting situation. And I think that with the temperature of the country right now, uh, I think one of the last things we want is for anyone to be shooting at anyone. Uh, That's not the way that you do that's not the way that you conduct government. That's not the way that you 
that you exert your 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 rights. <clears throat> I'm not saying that it can't happen. I'm not saying that uh, it may not have to happen. I'm just saying that's not the way it was meant to be, right? I mean, we went through this uh, 238 years ago. Uh, we fought a, a, a horrible eight-year-long bloody war and then established the guidelines for government, for our government, for a, uh, a an absolutely brand new type of government that's never been seen before on the face of the planet. And the whole idea was for this government to be uh, governing a, a body of individuals uh, with a an ever-increasing uh, amount of freedoms and liberties. And apparently it's gone in the wrong direction. Uh, it's gone into the direction of an ever-increasing amount of laws and regulations. And we have uh, certainly have the federal government that has grown exponentially. Everywhere you look, there is now the tendrils of the federal government that have become intertwined in our lives and have grown uh, through every nook and cranny and then wrapped themselves around uh, our lives. <clears throat> that's not the way it was meant to be. And yet that's the way that it is now. Uh, certainly that's the nature of the beast. You know, the government is going to do everything it can to... Uh, protect, uh, to solidify uh, its control, its power, that's, that's the nature of that beast. And we have a system of government that was crafted brilliantly uh, in order to limit the government and limit the powers that the government had, although... As I said, we see now on a daily basis, and it's not just this administration. I'm not just talking about the current administration that's been working in the, the last six years on it. Although this administration has certainly uh, has certainly turned the arc uh, from a gentle uh, a gentle climb to a vertical climb, as far as uh, as using powers illegally and creating powers for itself. That's the that's the uh, the current government's trajectory is straight up like a rocket. But every government, every government uh, has been in on this, and. <clears throat> Every government has been in on this. So, so we have a very daunting task ahead of us. And that means that, that, that none of us can sit on the sidelines. We're all going to have to be in the game. Every single one of us is going to have to be in the game. <clears throat> all right. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about 
the powder alarm and the, the things that were leading up to it. Uh, when folks think about the the American Revolutionary War, uh, they think about, uh, at least most people I know that think about it, and I know that I did, I certainly for a while think that, uh, that it just uh, kind of manifested itself out of the clear blue that one day uh, somebody came in and said, uh, uh, you're going to have to start paying taxes, and... Uh, uh, and we're not going to represent you anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and thus began taxation without representation. And uh, and then there was a spontaneous uprising of colonists <clears throat> that led to, to the events of April 19, 1775. That's just not the way that it was. The roots of... Uh, of the American Revolutionary War actually go back a couple of hundred years. And they definitely go back 100 years. And uh, and the events of 1775 actually had uh, the their uh, gentle curve turned into a rocket trajectory around uh, 17, uh, 1765, uh, the, uh, it was after the, the British victory in the Seven Years' War. <coughs> uh, and, and we knew this as, uh, in America, we knew this as the French and Indian War. In, uh, in England, it was called the Seven Years' War. The war, the French and Indian War, had uh, had been tremendously expensive for Great Britain. Uh, during the the course of the war, Britain nearly nearly doubled its existing national debt, uh, rising from about seventy two million pounds. Uh, to almost 130 million pounds by uh, 1764, by the end of it. That's uh, that's about uh, 15 billion pounds, about 30 billion dollars in money today. Of course, after the war, the post-war prices remained high. Just because the war ended, it didn't. Things did not automatically drop down uh, back to their pre-war prices and costs. It never does. I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've all seen that. If some prices go up for some reason, even when whatever was uh, whatever was listed as a cause of causing the price to go up, even whenever that disappears, the prices never go back down to what they were previous. Uh, to whatever it was that caused prices to go up. They just don't. I mean, people start charging a price. Uh, the, the merchants get used to receiving the money. The people get used to paying it. And uh, that's the way that it goes. Now, after the war, uh, the Butte Ministry, Lord Butte, decided to keep uh, about 10,000 
British regular soldiers in the American colonies in order to to protect the frontier, you know, protect their holdings. And uh, that was going to cost the empire about uh, 225,000 pounds a year. Uh, about the same as, uh, as 50, $60 million today. And uh, the primary reason for this wasn't really to uh, wasn't really to protect the American frontier. Uh, it was because that uh, if they, you know, the the army grew to a pretty large size during the Seven Years' War. If you all of a sudden demobilize the army, I mean, there, you you have to have a large army to fight a war. But when the war ends, what do you do with that army? And the answer is you have to demobilize. You have to uh, rip it out. You have to make them all civilians again, at least a majority of them, unless you can find some other war to uh, plug them into. <laughs> but there wasn't one. That, that meant that uh, about 1,500 of the uh, officers uh, in this particular army uh, and many of whom, many of these officers were, were, were very well connected men in Parliament, uh, would be end up being out of work. So uh, you can't dump uh, you can't dump that many folks and still have and still keep everybody happy. So they say, well, we're going to we're going to keep the uh, approximately ten thousand regulars uh, under arms in the colonies, and we're going to need. So that was that was uh, that that made it prudent to retain the large peacetime establishment because uh, uh, overseas having them overseas because uh, the Britons were were really not happy and they never had been about maintaining a large standing army at home. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants a large standing army in their in their country, in their city, in their home. It's just not a it's not a pretty thing. Armies are not uh they they don't make good neighbors, right? And uh and I I've certainly spent plenty of time in the military so I can testify to this. Uh soldiers, troops are they're trained to break things and, and hurt people, and that's what they'll do, even in peacetime. Plus, there's always a threat of them uh, being used against the nation that they're stationed in. So it was necessary to keep the the, the largest part of these forces elsewhere. And, uh, and one of the roles that they wanted to use them in was to use the 10,000 uh, regular troops to as a barrier, as a buffer between the Native Americans and the colonists because the England had made uh, plenty of deals with the Natives and said, look, we're not, gonna, <clears throat> we're not going to allow the colonists to move inland. They're going to stay out here on the coast. They're pretty close to the coast and just uh, these few coastal areas and uh, you guys stay inland, and uh, we'll keep them from going any further, and that way everybody's happy. 
And uh, the the English weren't doing it out of uh, any, uh, they weren't idealists. They weren't doing it because they said, well, that that land belongs to the natives and it's not right if the colonists continue to expand into it. <clears throat> that wasn't the case at all. They were uh, they were doing it because they wanted to keep the colonists from moving inland. If the colonists moved inland, <clears throat> then the further they moved away from the cities and ports, then the, the the more they were going to need to depend on their selves, on their own resources and stuff like that, and make their own stuff, uh, sell to each other, buy from each other, stuff like that. And England never wanted that. England always wanted the colonists to be uh, not just subject to the crown, but to be actively engaged in commerce with England. That is, That means that they wanted the, the colonists <coughs> to be suppliers of raw materials and buyers of finished products close enough to the ports that, uh, that to make this possible, make it feasible. Like I said, if you started moving back out into the uh, hundreds of miles from the coast, then pretty soon you're going to be you're going to be having to manufacture this stuff yourself. And England did not want America setting up manufacturing facilities. They wanted America to remain a supplier of raw goods and a buyer of English commodities. <clears throat> so the troops were going to be stationed uh, on the frontier as buffers between the uh, between the natives and the frontiersmen. Uh, The Greenville, uh, George Greenville, who became prime minister in uh, 1763, had to find a way to pay for the peacetime army. Now, raising taxes there at home in Britain was completely out of the question. Uh, There had already been violent uh, protests against the taxes while Butte was uh, a minister, and he tried raising taxes through a cider tax, which which was a pretty dumb idea, but why not tax a thing that uh, that most everybody's buying and using, which is cider, you know, something's uh, a drink. Uh, and Butte even got hanged in effigy for it, but uh, the Greenville, Greenville ministry figured that... Uh, Parliament could raise the money uh, by taxing the American colonists without their consent. Now, this was something brand new. Uh, had always, previously always, uh, passed measures regulating trade in the colonies, but they had never before directly taxed the colonies to raise revenue. They, they never had. They had regulated trade. Uh, they had... Uh, as I said, they had uh, they had forced uh, the economic situation that the colonists were currently living under. They forced them into that situation, but they had never directly taxed the colonists. <clears throat> now, the politicians there in the L- London had always they had always just figured the 
American colonists would contribute uh, to the cost of their own uh, defenses there, and as long as the French, uh, as long as the war was going on, as long as the French were a threat, which they were before the war, uh, there was there wasn't a whole bunch of trouble convincing the colonial legislatures uh, to provide assistance. That is, you know, they, they, they the colonies would collect their own taxes. <clears throat> and then they would send certain portions of that money to England to aid in revenues for uh, the defense of the colonies. <clears throat> but here's a problem. Uh, there was, and, and because of that, there was little reason for Parliament to impose any taxes on the colonies. You know, the colonies were already uh, turning out uh, a large amount of money in the trade, by their trade, and then they were voluntarily contributing money to their own defense. Uh, however, after the peace of 1763, there's no longer a threat from the French. You know, they, the French had made their peace uh, not only in Europe uh, and in the Caribbean, but along the frontier in the colonies. There was no longer a threat of, I mean, a threat of uh, war with the French now. The colonial militias had stood down. You know, they'd all gone back home and, and disbanded. Uh, the, the American colonial uh, officers, uh, and, and there were quite a few of them, but they were they were never treated as equals by the British, and uh, the majority of them uh, they they'd gotten very tired of the treatment of the disdain shown to them by the the British officers, and it was also virtually impossible for a colonial officer to receive a commission a regular commission British commissions and. Uh, and once the war was over, they had no desire to remain in service. And uh, and like I said, in, in really in any case, there was there was no military role for them to fulfill. The uh, the American threat was uh, was completely minimal. And uh, and because of this, the colonial legislatures uh, actually saw no need to have the British troops station colonies, and because of that, they saw no need to be taxed for them. Now, the first tax that uh, Greenville rolled out uh, to raise revenue in the Americas was the Sugar Act. Now, it's the Sugar Act of 1764. This was kind of a uh, modification of, if you remember, the Molasses Act of 1733. That was a tax on molasses, and uh, the Molasses Act had imposed a tax of six pence per gallon uh, on foreign molasses imported into British colonies. Uh, and and the Molasses Act was never really meant in and of itself to raise any revenues. It did. It was that was the intention of the intention of the 
the Molasses Act was to make the foreign molasses uh, so expensive that uh, that there would be no way that you would use it, that you would use the the much less expensive uh, molasses that was being imported from the uh, the British colonies during the Caribbean. Uh, it gave a monopoly to molasses that came from the West Indies, but it, it didn't work. Uh, the colonial merchants avoided the tax just by smuggling, or as was more often the case, uh, instead of paying the uh, you know the hundreds or thousands of pounds in taxes, they would just pay uh, you know ten pounds to the customs official and bribe him and and bring the molasses in. the Sugar Act reduced the tax from the uh, the Molasses Act to tax the molasses at six pence per gallon. The Sugar Act reduced the tax to three pence per gallon. And they were hoping that the, the lower rate would increase compliance and then it would actually raise revenue. And uh, the tax also taxed additional imports and, and include measures to make the customs service, which was going to be collecting the tax more effective. And the American colonists uh, initially objected to the Sugar Act for economic reasons alone. But before long, they they started looking at it from a different angle, and, and that angle was the fact that there were constitutional issues involved. That means that the their government was doing something to them, something to them that was illegal. <clears throat> the the British Constitution guaranteed that the British subjects could not be taxed without their consent, and that came in in the form of representation in Parliament. I mean, and that's supposed to be how it works today. But for you to be taxed, there has to be a consent of the governed to be taxed, and that consent usually comes in the form of your representative uh, either uh, agreeing to the tax or protesting the tax. It doesn't mean that you're going to, that because you say you don't want to pay, you don't have to. It just means that that you have a voice in the decision-making body. That's where the whole no taxation without representation came from because they essentially they were being taxed because there was no represent uh, there was no one to represent the colonists in England because their the colonists uh, were governing themselves in the colonies they were paying their taxes in the colonies <laughs> they had not been taxed by the uh, by London, by England, they had no one there uh, to represent them. And and a lot of people, a lot of people, you'll hear people all the time saying, "Look, the the tax, it wasn't that big a deal. It really wasn't that big a deal." And 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 you have people. Uh, 
like in uh, Paul Revere's book. He was talking about, uh, uh, not Paul Revere's book, Hack, David Hackett Fisher's book, Paul Revere's Ride. He was talking about asking one of the folks why he was fighting. He said, well, was it because of the Stamp Act? The guy said, no, never used those. Well, was, was it because of the works of some of the, uh, you know, the great authors, Locke or, or, or any of these guys? He said, no, nope, never read those. Only All I ever read was the hymnals of church. And he said, well, what was it then? What made you fight? And he said, because we'd always governed ourselves, and they meant for us not to. So the point is not how much the tax was actually costing the colonists. And it was a, a pretty decent tax, even the first one, even the, the first of the the stamp tax and the sugar tax. Uh, the point is, you 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 enter into a very tricky situation when you when you begin doing things to the people who are governed without their consent. And and this is happening to us today. When you when when you are when things are being done to you without your consent, <clears throat> when governments pass laws, when they uh, when they pass whole uh, uh, huge uh, economy changing uh, chunks of legislation like uh, Obamacare where even the proponents said, well, we'll have to pass it before we can find out what's in it, which to me, everybody kind of laughs about it, and it is kind of funny. But at the same time, it is scary and criminal. Whenever you, the danger comes from from forcing uh, the people who are being governed to to do things uh, without their consent. And that's what the colonists were mad about. Uh, it wasn't so much the money. Uh, it was the whole idea of it. <clears throat> that something was being done to them in an unfair manner. And listen, anytime, this is just a, it's not even just a human thing. I guarantee you, if you, you take a, you have several dogs and uh, you take the one dog and you, you toss half a pound of hamburger in their bowl and you put uh, uh you know, a half pound of dry dog food in the other bowl right beside it, the other dog, there's there's going to end up being a fight. Even if there's not, the dogs are going to look at you. And I swear, you can tell by the look in their eye, the one dog is looking at you going, this ain't right, man. This ain't right, and you know it ain't right. And that's the feeling, that is the problem that you start setting up. Uh The, the colonists 
had elected no members uh, to Parliament. So for Parliament to tax them was seen as a violation of their British constitution. Now, the colonists were all citizens of Britain, but since they had no voice in the colonies, then they could not legally, uh, things could not legally be done to them without their consent. Now, Parliament announced uh, in April of 1764, when the Sugar Act was passed, that they would also consider a stamp tax in the colonies. And uh, opposition to the tax of the colonies was, was very soon forthcoming. Uh, there was little expectation by, by Parliament or anyone in Britain either by uh, that, that it would be, that it would grow as big uh, as it would end up growing. Nobody, I don't think anybody thought that it would get as big as it did, but, uh, but it did. The, the tax uh, of the Stamp Act, uh, a lot of this is going to be very dry. Uh, I'm really not going to go into this right now because we'll, that's what he would, could, could do with a, a show of its own. Uh, the, uh, the the tax was a direct tax by Parliament, uh, specifically uh, on the colonies of America, and it required that, uh, that almost all of the printed materials in the colonies would be produced on stamped paper produced in London, carrying an embossed revenue stamp on the paper. This is everything. Everything that gets printed. Uh, legal documents, magazines, playing cards, newspapers, any, any kind, anything that was that was printed on paper in the colonies would have to be uh, printed on paper that had a stamp embossed in it. I mean, you'd have to go and buy the, the stamped paper. Uh, and uh, the tax had to be paid in a uh, a valid British currency, not not any of the the, the the local specie, not any of the colonial paper money, and uh, and that also uh, caused a great deal of grief in the colonies. <clears throat> All right, uh, we'll jump ahead now to the. Uh, to the the Gatsby affair, all right. Now, as I said, the the colonists were the way they were getting around a lot of the the taxes was uh, just by not buying the stuff from England, not buying the tax paper, not buying the uh, uh, the tax sugar or molasses, etc. They were just they would buy it from, from anybody else who came in. And smuggling was a big business time in the colonies. There were a lot of smugglers. <clears throat> Anytime you have any situation where uh, where there's a great disparity in prices of items, you know, if you have, uh, like it right now, you have things like cigarettes. You have cigarettes that are highly taxed by the government, uh, but you can certainly find uh, a 
all over. You can find uh, cigarettes that don't have a tax stamp on them, and they're going to be a lot cheaper. So you could buy, uh, you know, a hundred of cartons of uh, untaxed cigarettes a lot cheaper and sell them and make uh, lots of money. So anytime you have uh, disparity in prices like that, then you're going to have smuggling. That's just the way of the world. And that's what they were doing. The colonists were smuggling. And and so the England ran a pretty large customs service uh, in the colonies. And it was manned by the local, by, by their agents locally in the colonies. Uh, and the Treasury Service in the North American colonies had uh, really had a very violent history. I mean, there was a there was always uh, uh, it's no different than say the the history of, of say the uh, the moonshiners and the revenuers. You know, the the tax guys in in Kentucky, the Tennessee uh, Valley, the Tennessee Mountains, and stuff that uh, have a very violent history as well. And the same situation had developed in the colonies. Uh, after the war with uh, France, uh, England had taken uh, half a dozen ships that that they had uh, uh, captured from the French, and uh, they anglicized the names of them. And uh, one of these was uh, the Gaspe. Uh, in early 1772, uh, Lieutenant William Duddingston sailed the Gaspe into Rhode Island's uh, Naringset Bay uh, in order to aid in the enforcement of the customs collections and to inspect uh, the cargo, the incoming car- cargo, and of course Rhode Island at the time had a lot of uh, a lot of seaports and had a, had a huge reputation for smuggling and even trading with the enemy, you know, during wartime. Uh, and as the federal bureaucracies are known to do, uh, the revenuers very quickly antagonized uh, the merchants uh, in the colonies. And on June 9th, the Gaspe uh, gave chase to the packet boat Hannah. And uh, during the chase, the Gaspe ran aground in the shallow water on the uh, northwestern side of the bay. The crew was unable to free the uh, the ship, but they thought that the rising tide might uh, allow the ship to free itself. However, a band of the Providence members of the Sons of Liberty rode out to confront the ship's crew before the ship could uh, uh, could get off the shoals. Uh, at the break of dawn, on the 10th, they boarded the ship. The crew put up some resistance, but not much. The lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Duddington, was shot and wounded. And then they burned the vessel down to the water line. Uh, the, the previous attacks by colonists on British naval vessels had had really kind of gone unpunished. And, you know, there had been quite a few. But like I said, it wasn't 
this isn't this this wasn't uh the idea behind this was not resistance or revolution or war. It was a monetary thing that that put this in a whole different light you know whenever they were uh when they were fighting or burning ships and stuff like that, and they burnt a couple of ships already before previously in the years it it wasn't because they were trying to uh, undermine British rules because they were trying to make a buck. So it was, it was thought of a bit differently, and uh, and the reality, uh, really up to this date, there there really had been no significant administrative response. But uh, with the burning of the gas beam, 1772, uh, the Admiralty decided it was not going to ignore the destruction of a military vessel on station because, like I said, the gas bee had actually been commissioned into the British uh, Navy. Uh, the American Department consulted the solicitor and attorney generals. Uh, they investigated it. They advised the Privy Council of England on the constitutional options available. The Crown turned to a centuries-old institution of investigation called the Royal Commission of Inquiry. Uh, the commission would be made up of the chiefs of the Supreme Courts of Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, and the judges of the Vice Admiralty in Boston, along with the governor of Rhode Island, allowed those suspected of burning uh, the gas bee to be tried in England. But this wasn't the law that was going to be used against the gas bee raiders. They were going to be charged with treason. The task of the commission was to determine against which colonists there was uh, enough evidence uh, to actually bind them for trial in England. But the commission was unable to obtain uh, sufficient evidence and declared their inability to deal with the case. So, but this also raised uh, another prospect that, uh, that the colonials didn't want to deal with, and that was the prospect of Americans being sent to England for trial. And the whole reason I'm, I'm bringing this to you is because, because now it starts up with the Committee of Correspondence. All right? That's where the Committee of Correspondence came from. The colonial Whigs uh, being being alarmed at the prospect of Americans being sent to England for trial. See, if you, if you commit a crime in the colonies, then you would expect to be tried there because if you're, because you can call witnesses, uh, you, you know, you can call uh, character witnesses and you can investigate, etc. If they yank you over to England, there's no way for you to get witnesses. There's no way... There's nothing. You're just going to be taken to England, and sentence will be pronounced on you. And nobody wanted that to happen. So the Committee of Correspondence was formed in Boston to to begin consulting on this. In Virginia, the House of Burgess was was so alarmed that they also formed an intercolonial Committee of Correspondence to consult in this crisis with other committees. The, 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 the reason I'm bringing this up is because 
uh, up until this point, the the colonists were were kind of dealing with things, but they were dealing with them as individual entities, uh, and they weren't looking at the government in England as being separate from their own. They were looking at, and when things like this would happen, they would be tried in the colonies. They were looking at themselves being the representatives of the government in England. Okay, now they're looking at themselves instead of being uh, separate entities. They're looking at themselves now forming up together in order to consult with each other on what to do to how to defend against the government. It's a very important point in the history of the colonies. This is a, a point where you begin to think less of yourself as an agent of the government uh, and as more of uh, an entity that is in opposition to the government. <clears throat> so the Gaspi affair... Uh, began the committees, of course, and not just uh, not just the one in Boston, but uh, but different committees in different colonial uh, in in different colonies, working with each other to talk about what they would do uh, in order to oppose. Uh, in order to oppose the the idea of being shipped back to England to face uh, trial for these crimes. <clears throat> uh, at the same time, in Boston, there was a, uh, a visiting minister. His name was John Allen. He preached a sermon at the Second Baptist Church uh, in Boston, that used the Gaspi affair to warn listeners about greedy monarchs, corrupt judges, conspiracies at high levels in the law of the government. The sermon ended up getting printed uh, seven different times and in four different cities. It became one of the most popular pamphlets of colonial British America. This pamphlet, along with the uh, incendiary rhetoric of numerous colonial newspaper editors began to awake the colonial Whigs from a, a lull of inactivity in 1772. This began the inauguration of a series of conflicts that would eventually culminate in Lexington and Concord. So the Gatsby affair, uh, which is tied to and grew out of uh, the Stamp Act, uh, or as part of the Stepping Stones, <clears throat> to what would become uh, now uh, as colonists continue to protest the taxes, uh, the the relations between the 13 separate colonies and the British Parliament, Parliament uh, were pretty steadily uh, worsening. Uh, 
beginning the uh, beginning at the end of the Seven Years' War. And, and let me also say about the Seven Years' War real quick that <clears throat> many of the colonists felt that uh, that they shouldn't have had to fight it in the first place; that they were being dragged into these wars by England, and they were ending up uh, they were ending up defending themselves and fighting themselves and uh and anyway <clears throat> with the uh with the continuing taxes beginning with the the uh camp act of uh, 1765 the Townsend acts of 67 uh the declaratory act of 66 and uh <clears throat> Uh, it was a uh, it was like a, a stepping stones uh, of of taxation and an act that would happen in America in the colonies uh, that were in opposition to the the laws and taxes being imposed on them, and then the repercussions uh, that the colonists would uh, would be visited on the colonists because of that. Now, <clears throat> finally, uh, we know that <clears throat> as the taxes continued, uh, there ended up being a tax on tea. And uh, certainly this is uh, the beginning of, of the end for the taxes. And uh, And once again, uh the the tax was not uh it was not an overbearing tax but what they were doing is they they were forcing the colonists to only buy the tea from the british west indies and as we know what uh, happened then uh in december of uh, 1773 uh the the sons of liberty uh in conjunction with uh, several other patriot groups ended up destroying uh uh a lot of tea in uh in boston now the tea had been uh had been shipped to the colonies uh from the west indies and it had not been allowed to be taken off of the ship, so it was stuck on the ship because they were not allowing it to be offloaded. They were saying, you're going to have to take it back. Well, they, the merchants and the British government uh, knew that they would lose a lot of money if they did that, uh, so they were keeping the ship there trying to work out the deal to get it offloaded, uh, and while this was happening, the Sons of Liberty uh, boarded the ships took the uh, cargo, dumped it into the uh, Massachusetts Bay there, and and there wasn't just a little bit of tea. Uh, we're talking about uh, by the time they got all the tea out of the cargo holes and dumped, they, you could walk from the ship to the pier uh, on the tea. So there was a, there was a lot of tea, many tons of tea that were dumped into the harbor. Now, of course, 
they would have been immediately uh, demonized by the EPA for this. They would have done it now. Uh, the Crown the uh, certainly couldn't let this go. So what they ended up doing was they passed, uh, they started passing acts. And these were punitive measures that were intended to punish the citizens of Boston until they paid for all that tea. Uh, the Port Act was one of the first acts that were passed in response to the Boston Tea Party. The uh, uh, the British government closed the port of Boston until the East India Company had been repaid for the destroyed tea and until the king was satisfied that order had been restored. <clears throat> and the colonists objected that the Port Act punished all of Boston, rather just the folks who had destroyed the tea, and that they were being punished, that having been given an opportunity to to testify in their own defense. And that's true, because it wasn't all of Boston that did it. It was you know, a small group of, of uh, individuals. Uh, so next was the Massachusetts Government Act. Now this, uh, this caused even more anger in the colonies because it completely, it unilaterally altered the government of Massachusetts and brought in control of the British government. Now under the terms of the Government Act, all the positions in the colonial government were to be appointed by the governor Parliament or the king. They were essentially like uh, federalizing uh, the government. The act also severely limited the activities of all the town meetings in Massachusetts to one meeting a year, unless the governor ended up calling a, a meeting. Uh, the colonists outside of Massachusetts, they started getting worried too because they said, well, what's, what's going to happen to us? Maybe our governments uh, are going to be ripped apart by the by Parliament. But they don't like something we do now. So this had sent a uh, sent a shutter all the way through all of the colonies. It was done as a punitive measure against the the uh, against the city of Boston in support of Boston. But when it happened, like I said, all of the colonies said, Hey, they're doing it to them, they can do it to us. Then came the Administration of Justice Act. Now, this allowed the governor to, the royal governor, uh, to order that the trials of the accused royal officials will take place in Great Britain or elsewhere within the empire, which decided the defendant could not get a fair trial in Massachusetts. Uh, now, the act did that witnesses could re could be reimbursed after having traveled at their own expense across the Atlantic. Uh, but uh, that could take, you know, going there and coming back could take six, eight months a year. Uh, what are you going to do about your wages or about anything? Uh, uh, this is this what it's like to protect 
any of the royal uh, that that did something in the colonies. They could do whatever they want in the colonies. They may end up facing a trial, but it was going to be back in England or somewhere else in uh, within the empire, so that the testify against them. <clears throat> then was the Quartering Act. If you wonder why we have uh, all of the all of the rights that we have in the Bill of Rights, it can all be traced straight back to 1772, 73, 74, all the way up to 83. All of it can be traced almost directly back to that. Now, the Quartering Act actually applied to all of the colonies. Uh, and what they were trying to do, they are trying to figure out a more effective method for housing the British troops uh, in the Americas. Now, previously, uh, the colonies had been required to provide housing for soldiers, but uh, but quite a few of the colonial legislatures were they were uncooperative in doing so. Now, the new Quartering Act allowed the governor to house soldiers in uh, in other buildings if the uh, suitable quarters were not provided. That means that the governor could uh, uh, he could just say, "All right, I'm going to these I'm going to put these 400 troops, uh, and they're going to go straight into this neighborhood, and there's going to be." Uh, uh, six guys per house. Even the house is only made for four people. Uh, we're going to put six guys in each of the houses. That means either the people there are going to have to move out, or they're going to have to all sleep on the floor. Uh, the governor could uh, decree that the troops could be quartered uh, in the private homes. It the the colonists of course, didn't want this, and uh, and it actually generated the least amount of protest. Uh, but, but it's just not right. I'll just say that. It's just not right. Uh, so this is what the colonists were now facing. And the whole reason that they were having to wonder about troops and where those troops were going to stay is because there were now troops stationed in Boston. Uh, when people think about the uh, Lexington, Concord, the American Revolutionary War and stuff like that, I don't think that many people understand that the troops that they were fighting were not they weren't the neighborhood troops. They weren't the troops that uh, that had always been there. These were troops that were had been brought in specifically to enforce the Intolerable Act. They were brought in specifically as punitive uh, measures to make the colonists pay for their unruliness. Uh, they brought in the troops as a show of force. Uh, you don't do what we say. Here are the troops uh, that are going to stomp you into submission. <clears throat> this is what ended up setting up the uh, setting up the the 
scenario, the situation for the powder alarms. And the powder alarm began, uh, well, uh, right near the end of uh, uh, end of 
five barrels of powder, uh, maybe a quarter ton of powder. We were gonna we need to store it in your facilities. And they say, okay, that's a nice, dry, safe place to store it. And uh, Bradley wrote a letter to Gage saying that all of the towns, all the nearby towns and cities, had all removed their powder. The only thing that was left uh, was the provincial powder. And the king actually claimed that powder as his own. Now, actually, it belonged to the province, belonged to the colony. But the king was saying that it belonged to him. And before any more powder got taken away, uh, he was going to go and get it. Because, obviously, if, if there was any kind of a shooting situation... He did not want the colonists to have thing and have the materials to shoot at him. So he was going to go and get the powder. Well, on uh, 31st, uh, Gage sent uh, 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 Sheriff Phipps uh, to go and meet with Brattle with order to remove the provincial powder. Brattle turned the key to the powder house order Phipps. And uh, Gage also gave orders to ready a force of troops for action the next day, something that that didn't go unnoticed by the local population. Now, at some point that day, uh, Gage either intentionally or accidentally or due to the theft of a messenger uh, lost possession of Bridal's letter uh, and it somehow in the hands of the colonists and got uh, got the contents got quickly spread uh, throughout the colonies. Uh, early in the morning of September 1st, uh, a force of about uh, 260 British regulars from the 4th Regiment, these were under the command of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Madison, uh, rode in uh, darkness up the Mystic River from Boston to a landing point near Winter Hill, near modern-day Somerville. From there, they marched about a mile to the powder house. Uh, Phipps gave the king's troops the keys to the building, and after sunrise, they removed all of the gunpowder. And I told you before that uh, they didn't want to remove it in darkness because that meant you had to go inside the building with a lamp and uh, and there were plenty of stories uh, and you know you were complete, you were always warned back then against that but there were plenty of stories about about people going into gunpowder storage areas with candles and lamps and the magazines exploding and, and everyone being killed and there's no way to question them and say what happened uh, because everybody got blown to bits. So eventually the rule just became you don't go in there, you don't go into the the magazine storage with any kind of a light or lantern. So they didn't. They waited until sunrise. Once the sun came up, and in this one particular building there in Somerville, the, the magazine storage, there's a uh, a window, I believe pretty high up on the on the wall, like up on the second story area. And uh, I'm sure it allowed enough light in for them to be able to see, and they removed the powder. <clears throat> uh, 
this was uh, the largest supply of gunpowder in Massachusetts. And uh, the troops removed it. Uh, they took it back to the uh, the boats they had rowed on, and then they had uh, enough folks to row that back. They also stopped by uh, Cambridge uh, and grabbed two of the cannon there and took them uh, by foot uh, up Boston Neck and back into Boston. The uh, fuel pieces and the powder that was taken uh, from the magazine there in storage was taken to the British stronghold on Castle Island, uh, then known as Castle William, and renamed by the colonists, by the colonial army, Fort Independence in uh, 1779. Now, this was this is how uh, this is how all of the the uh, information uh disbursement methods got uh were started decided on and started being worked on. Now throughout the day on this day, on uh uh the uh, September first, uh rumors were spreading all across the countryside uh about British troops being everywhere, about them uh, attacking cities and and hacking people to death and and British ships firing on the the uh, city of Boston. Uh, the, the rumors were going wild, uh, and uh, as the rumors were going across the countryside, uh, people and the alarm went all the way up to Connecticut, and it it went as fast as a horse could run, all the way up to Connecticut. People from all over the region began uh, gearing up, arming up, and heading to Boston for what they thought was a war. Uh, one of the travelers in Shrewsbury reported that in the space of about 15 minutes, he saw 50 men uh, gather up there in the square, uh, equip themselves with their packs and rifles, etc., uh, send out messengers to the surrounding towns and then take off. This is all done in in 15 minutes. And uh, and it was going on all across the the uh, the countryside there in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, by the seventh, by the second. Uh, it is believed that there were upwards of of twenty five to thirty five thousand armed men heading to or making their way toward Boston before they were before they were stopped and and anyone found out that uh, that the rumors were not true. Uh, also, in the second, the Boston Papers published a letter from Bridal. Uh, the guy who's supposed to have written the letter to Gage, and he, and he protested that he had not warned Gage to remove the powder, that Gage had requested from him an accounting of the storehouse's contents, and he simply complied. The content of his letter to Gage will be published on the 5th, and, and Brattle 
remained on Castle Island through the siege of Boston. He only left when the British evacuated the city in March of uh, 76. Uh, and uh, he ended up dying in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, that October. Uh, Gage completely surprised by the scope of the colonial reaction. Uh, he had several more powder raid planned, and uh, there was a second one he had he planned to go to the uh, magazine stores in Worcester. He canceled that one, and he he got all his troops together in Boston, and uh, and really got pretty rattled about it. As a matter of fact, he wrote a letter to London. In the letter he wrote, if you take, he was asking for reinforcements for the troops. He said, if you thousand men are sufficient, send twenty. If one million is thought enough, send two. You will save both blood and treasure in the end. Uh, but the folks who got Gage's letter there in Parliament and stuff, uh, they they looked at the letter and they considered the the whole thing to be absurd. Uh, all throughout the empire, there were only 12,000 troops. Gage had asked for 20,000. There were only 12,000 in the empire at the time. Now, they did send him another 400 Marines uh, in response to the, these requests. And eventually, he began planning and executing seizures again. And then he fortified the Boston Peninsula. Now, after the... Uh, powder alarm, the forces throughout New England were much more cautious with their supplies and a lot more intent on gaining information about Gage's plans and movements, the true movements. Like I said, he got them this time. He got them with the, with the first uh, raid, but, uh, but the, they vowed that they would not be uh, they would not be taken by surprise again. They organized uh, intelligence gathering uh, all over the colonies. <clears throat> they uh, they had everybody in the colonies working for them, listening to the troops, uh, you know, sending back information uh, to the the many different uh, groups that were uh, that were gathering intelligence, and uh, it was said in in Boston that you could not uh, you could not have a conversation anywhere in the city without being overheard unless you walked out to the end of the uh, city wharf. And that's actually what a lot of the, the a lot of the folks did. A lot of the officers did. They wanted to have a private discussion. They ended up walking out to the end of the wharf uh, there in Boston. That way, they were sure that nobody could be listening to what they were saying or what they were planning. <clears throat> now, Gage uh, did send out several more raids. Uh, he sent out uh, a raid to Portsmouth, uh, close to Salem, and 
and that was that Ray was not a uh, a terrible failure. But the the troops ended up uh, stuck on one side of a bridge and one side of a drawbridge uh, away from the area they were supposed to be searching with the folks uh, yelling at them, and they couldn't do anything. Uh, They ended up having to march back in shame to uh, back to the ships that they came on and sail back to Boston. Now, Gage thought that his actions were teaching Thomas Austin. And in fact, they were. They were teaching the colonists a lesson. Unfortunately, it was not the lesson that uh, uh, that <laughs> that he wanted to teach them. Uh, I don't know if I'm if I if I just killed my uh, if I killed my sound. Uh, Sam, can you? Uh, You're good there, Scout. Okay. All right, good. I think I just killed... uh, I actually killed one of my... One of my windows. I was going back from one window to another, and I think I actually killed uh, one of my windows. Anyway, uh, he was was certainly teaching them lessons, but it was not the lesson that he meant to teach them. Uh, he meant to teach them to be subservient and to shut up and, and do what uh, he was telling them to do. Uh, instead, what Gage was teaching them was how to respond to the rage, how to uh, gather intelligence, how to disperse the intelligence, how to uh, uh, mobilize uh, forces and get them from one place to another quickly how to get the alarm out about the things that were going on. So he was actually training the colonists. And, of course, uh, this would come back to haunt him when he eventually sent out uh, troops, a large contingent of troops, for a raid on Concord. Uh, When he sent the troops out to raid the city of Concord, and to seize their stores of powder and, and arms. By this point, the colonists uh, had been trained pretty well. Uh, and these are the events. These are the events that led up to the engagements on April 19, 1775, at Lexington and Concord, and then along Battle Road back to Boston. <clears throat> The uh, as a very dangerous uh, when they engage in these type of things, they they are entering into a very dangerous game with the citizens. Now we see the same thing going on today. We see the uh, the federal government. Uh, coming in with uh, 
with what pretty much everyone believed to be a very a very heavy handed to the events there at Bundy at the Bundy Ranch. And we saw the citizens respond to it and eventually uh they rose up and they they forced uh the BLM agents uh, to leave the field that day. This uh, is certainly uh, going to set the stage for any future uh, events like this. And uh, the next time the government will probably figure it has to do something even more, uh, strict even more hard in order to uh, to show the citizens that they mean business. And the citizens are going to respond uh, even in an even more hard and perhaps even more violent way to show the government that they are not going to be mishandled. So this is a very, very dangerous game uh, that the government is entering into very dangerous dance uh, because it it almost always ends up with two groups of folks uh, standing on a village green somewhere uh, with violence uh, being ready to be precipitated so that is my that is my story of uh of the pattern alarms my story of uh, of what can happen what did happen uh, we see certainly history repeating itself uh many times uh throughout the last uh, two hundred and thirty five years two hundred and thirty eight years we see Almost the exact same situation uh, that begins again only 70 years later in Texas. You have the Texas colonists who their only, their, their main gripe is that they are not being uh, given their rights under the Mexican Constitution. That's what they want. They didn't want to separate. They wanted their rights under the Mexican Constitution. When they were not given them, they ended up protesting. Uh, Some of the protests got violent. Commanding general at the time decided that uh, he would get them to shut up by doing the same thing Gage did. He would go and take their powder, their arms, uh, he told them that he was coming to take uh, to seize their. Uh, they had a couple of little tiny cannons that they used to, for defense uh, against the Indians. He was coming to get them, make them hand them over. That's where you see the flag here in Texas that "Come and Take It" flag from. They said, "If you want our cannons, come and take them." So he sent troops in uh, to disarm the colonists in Texas. That began a seven-month. Uh, run uh, with over a dozen major battles and finally ending on uh, 
the weekend of the April uh, uh, 21st, the Texas forces uh, completely stopping uh, General Santa Ana's troops at the Battle of San Jacinto. So we see both these cases. We see the governors uh, deciding that the way that they're going to make the colonists do what they want is just by forcing them to at at the at the point of a gun and by taking by going and uh seizing and disarming the colonists that's how they figured they were going to do it and in both cases it led to a major uh civil war and the defeat uh of those forces that's what history shows uh-huh. All right. Uh, I want to remind folks that uh, that each and every one of us have a responsibility to safeguard the freedoms and liberties that we enjoy by virtue of living in this nation. I mean, you've got to do something. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what you have to do. I'll tell you that it should begin uh, with you contacting your representatives and uh, and letting them know what uh, your needs are, what your wishes are, what your desires for uh, your city, your county, your state, your nation are, and then making sure they follow through with those. But you've got to start somewhere. All right, this weekend there is a uh, a protest in Texas, and uh, it's happening uh, out on the Red River, and uh, folks are gathering there for the uh, to to protest. Uh, the BLM uh, claims to the land there, and uh, I'm going to pull this up real quick so I can give you a real quick uh, uh, talk on it. The uh, this is. Uh, this is from a website called Don't Comply, Do Not Comply dot com, and uh, they're talking about the Red River uh, Open Carry Rally, and what the uh, folks are doing this weekend is uh, they are meeting. Uh, let me see here. For an open carry walk to be held in Wichita Falls and the border between the Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, and they're going to ask folks to come and have an open carry walk. Now, open carry, of course, is going to mean rifles. There's no open carry uh, pistols in Texas. It's just open carry rifles. But they're going to, but folks are going to meet, and uh, and there's also a campsite. Uh, that folks are going to be camping at, and 
ones to protest the uh, uh, BLM, I guess, uh, deciding to uh, to make some claims uh, to the Texas land there. And uh, this is, uh, hold on just a second here. There's a local landowner uh, who's uh, living there close to the, the land uh, named Jimmy Smith, and uh, he's going to uh, allow uh, folks to gather there for the event, a chance for the landowners in the area to visit, talk about it, share their concerns. Uh, now, if you want more information on this, you can go to uh, this particular, just uh, Google Red River uh, BLM, and it will give you the, the listings for most of the uh, the folks involved in this. <clears throat> okay, I want to thank everybody for, uh, for listening tonight, and uh, we'll see you back again uh, this uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. And until uh, then, God bless and uh, keep you.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.